Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. We welcome you to Bite Into It. We talk technology, the internet, uh, interesting Arizona test cases um, about the internet. Um, it's going to be a fun show uh, tonight. Uh, behind the panel, we have Dan Salmon. Good Dan, evening. How are you? I'm very well. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. I had one of those very particular Wednesdays that felt exactly as it should um, <laughs> in on, on the box. You know those um, amazing hump days that people talk about. It yeah, was, was one of one of those. Nice, nice. No, I've I've forgotten what those are like, but you know, days have just kind of gone in and out of each other. There's days that I go into my desk, and there's days that I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was having a chat to someone today, and uh, it, you know, being in Melbourne, of course, um, we both agreed we'd only really had four months of 2020. Um, and he said, "Yeah, I didn't really get going. Like, um, I did a couple of things, but I just realised 2021 was coming." So, yeah, but um, yeah, just a, a few weeks left in the year. That's Have it. you had a um, had a good week in technology? Middling? Yeah, look, it's 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 been uh, it's been an all right week in technology. I've, I've I've dipped my toe into dating apps, and it seems to be going all right. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's just, you know, my, my, my video calls at work are going well, haven't had many freeze. I can see you on Skype. Like (laughs) these are positives. These are positives. I'm just taking every win that I can get. Yeah. Take them. Absolutely. Um, I, I will be with you also. I'm Warren Davies. Um, oh, in terms of. In terms of my weekend tech, yeah, I have had some very shaky video calls. Um, they're still kind of tinkering around with uh, NBN and our street and, and just doing something something of that uh, ilk. But um, good otherwise, good otherwise, um, things have been doing what they should, so I'm pretty happy with that. Um, tonight on the show, uh, an interesting one is code speech. Um, I don't think we've ever really uh, spoken about this, and... Um, is it expressive, creative, unique? Uh, can code be compelled to, to um, uh, do something? Um, so there's a relatively small court case um, that's shaping up in Arizona at the moment which uh, looks into this and the important addendum that uh, if code is speech and then what, what that would actually mean. So we're going to explore that uh, in a few minutes on the show, um, which I'm, I'm looking forward to. Oof, investigating tone in a language. I like it. Nice. Um <laughs> And a second study into technology and domestic violence has uh, just been released in Australia by uh, WESNET, which is the Women's Services Network, and also Curtin University. Uh, so technology can and does uh, enable some kinds of domestic violence, um, and we'll take a look at what it might be able to help with also uh, in this context. Can we use it um, to, to get better results and, um, and resolutions there? So WESNET CEO uh, Karen Bentley will join us uh, a bit later in the show to, to have a look at that interesting research. But... Before then, there is um, a bit of stuff going on um, around the world that we wanted to um, uh, have a chat to you about. Um, uh, an interesting one in uh, in the states: um, Florida police officers um, did make a, a, a lusty raid on a, a house uh, early on Monday morning. Um, uh, an ousted health department data scientist, um, Rebecca Jones, um, was um, collared, I guess, um, and her computer, her phone, and other hardware um, that supports the coronavirus website that she set up, um, accusing the state of manipulating its uh, official numbers. Um, so those things have been uh, uh, have been taken. 
Um, so it's interesting. I, I guess, obviously, on, on this side of the world, we've been um, watching coronavirus numbers, you know, um, uh, fastidiously throughout the year. Mm. And um, for the same reasons that Americans have been looking at it and... Um, you know they're in a they're in a spot of um, bother to say the least uh, at the moment. Yeah. So um, yeah, we do have people like uh, Rebecca Jones uh, who have been, uh, I guess, trying to uh, open up um, accurate data and report on sort of accurate numbers um, around uh, around the United States. Mm. But um, yeah, very alarming that um, they have uh, um, taken this heavy-handed approach to. Um, cracking down on Rebecca. Abs- um, absolutely. And, and and worrying that we had to get to the point where, you know, governments can't be trusted to release the data that uh, is available in the best interests of its population. That that That's... It's indicative of a, of a broken system. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It's... Um, the fact that people not... have to hack in to actually get that data out there. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I, I think um, government responses around the world have been, you know, uh, really varied. Um, you've seen some good responses and some um, one sort of, you know, um, that could have been a lot stronger. And I, I think um, the states probably as a, as a country rather than a state or sort of county level uh, certainly done a, a terrible job of kind of contextualising and reporting on, on um, the true numbers. But, um, yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on this one and, and see um, if Rebecca uh, does um, get afforded a due process and um, hopefully is... Um, makes bail or, or the equivalent really soon. He's hoping. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in that, um, you can check out um, Rebecca's uh, Twitter feed. Um, she's at Geo Rebecca, R-E-B-E-K-A-H, um, to, to stay on top of that one. Um, Dan, you're, you're also saying on, on top of uh, spam calls and scams, you are a resident spam and scan I, uh, Oh, look, yeah, I, I, I dipped my toe in. This is, this is a pandemic of a different kind. Um, spam calls, it, it, it's been revealed, uh, well, I suppose it's been kind of assessed, that spam calls increased wo- worldwide 18% this year. Um, despite several efforts... Whoa. Yeah, that's huge. That's huge. Like... Uh, Carriers, telcos, mobile developers, smartphone makers, uh, global pandemic, spam calls continued and we're we're talking about 31.3 billion spam calls between January and October. That's not even the whole year. That is the first 10 months of the year, which is an increase from 26 billion during the same period last year and 17.7 billion the year before. So that's almost a doubling in two years of the number of spam calls. Uh, This is according to the Stockholm headquartered firm Truecaller, um, who... Uh, have a caller ID app that they uh, that they have developed. Um, look, it's the the average American received twenty eight point four spam calls a month this year. Whoa, a month. Look, I I I would say that I probably receive maybe one a month, if that. Mm. And most of the time, it's like I'm not sure if this is a differentiating between calls or between um, you know getting a tech like a phishing text message where someone will try and come back to you with your or try and get you to get back to them with your with your mm. personal details um, the worst the the country with the worst uh, effect of spam calls was Brazil mm. um, which uh, where are we they, they got 49.5 spam calls per user a month which is an increase from 45.6 per month last year. I think oh, basically, man. you just have to like take a day off work a week to uh, deal with your calls. Like well, set up a spreadsheet. Like, are they coming in? Who are they coming in from? Well, that's Full-time it. Like, and I mean, like, I'm, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I've become that kind of person who, when I try, when I do get a spam call, particularly if it's a scam call, I try and play play 
a game with them and try and mess with them a little mm. bit. So that, you know, that can take two or three minutes out of my day. And if that was happening to me 45.6 times a month, <laughs> what's that? I'm, I'm, I'm losing like an hour, two hours a, week, a month to, to messing with scammers. It's not a good use of my time. It's not a good use of anyone's time. I did. Uh, I did get scammed last month. I um, I fell for one of the uh, phishing ones because um, you know we've got so much mail coming and going. So yeah, just a warning to anyone who gets a text message saying um, pay this duty on this um, parcel. Mm. You know, especially if it's a small amount, it's a typical strategy to just go get you for a dollar or two, and mm. then you know hit you later that day for hundreds or thousands or something like that. We'll so, see. It's 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 interesting, and I, I don't know if I, I haven't read the whole article, but maybe this is a theory that's just popped into my head. Those kinds of scams where it's like, please release this. Um, you you know, delivery. Yeah. Plus, like, you know, think about how many more online deliveries you have gotten in this year as a result mm-hmm. of not being able to go to the shops. Like, I there were da- there were plenty of times and plenty of days where I had things arrive that I'd forgotten that I'd ordered. So I reckon that there is that like that would be ripe for scams personally. But I'm, I'm not yeah. sure. Everyone, everyone listening right now, I'll tell at least five people not to fall for that one. Absolutely. Like, just, just by talking about it, we've probably given some people some ideas, but we'll <laughs> let's, 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 message. don't we'll, do that one. We'll edit that out of the podcast. Yeah. Um, one thing that uh, I did uh, come across today, which was interesting because I, I hadn't heard too much about it, um, Google's actually opening up uh, a new operating system that they've been working on called Fuchsia, um, one of the better shades of pink, I mm-hmm. guess. There you go. Um, yeah, uh, for a long time, um, there's been, uh, I guess, uh, rumors coming out and some, some uh, mutterings, um, uh, according to this piece, about the OS. Um, and I think, uh, I, I think, um, I mean, it's hard to encapsulate sort of how you feel about Google, mm-hmm. um, some good things, um, some terrible practices, and the whole idea of just like hoovering up our, our data is, is very questionable. But yeah. they are, in some parts, trying to make efforts towards um, uh, being more open source. Um, and, you know, the open source community would laugh up their sleeve about that, and that's that's fair enough. But um, this one, um, they've recently released uh, as a – well, it started as an experiment. It's become more than that. They've opened it up to external developers to have a bit of a play, um, releasing the uh, code um, for the um, operating system uh, out through GitHub. Uh, so, yeah, it's one of the more technical people to jump in and have a go you can recreate the um uh the the uh, source code and code for the um uh, operating system uh, yourself mm-hmm. and um give it a bit of a crack um they're keen to get some feedback on it uh, as well um and you know interested in uh, i guess a more open source experience compared to say uh you know um uh, android or, or other ones that uh, they work with sure um, so is, is fuchsia like going to be a replacement for android or is it going to be for a different kind of use uh, it's unclear from this. Uh, I, there's a bit of documentation. Uh, to be to be honest, I've just found this um, this afternoon at oh. five, so I haven't had too much of a look into it. But oh. they've, uh, there's a lot of documentation. Um, they're publishing a technical roadmap um, as well, um, as well as a, a driver framework, file system performance, and expanding um, uh, their concern about accessibility. Um, they've uh, noted as one of the things that they um, want to be stronger with. But um, yeah, I think it's. It's, it's one of those ways that you can um, replace your, your current sort of dominating product just to kind of throw one out there and, and see if it takes and, mm. and if people are interested. Um, I mean, people do like to laugh about uh, their many notable failures over the years, um, uh, you know, Google Wave, Google Plus, all those kinds of things. But you do have to... You do have to give those things a go, and you have to put them out there. And some some will almost break through. Things yeah. like Google Glass and Wave and, and Plus, people did use them and they did get take up, and there was... A market for something else, but unfortunately, they just kind of didn't get past, or even like yeah. just too soon. Like Google Glass is a great idea, 
has some failings, but maybe just a little bit too soon. Wrong time, yeah. But I, I still have hope for Google Loon. I hope that, that like people will actually appreciate what Google Loon does. Well, you know, maybe it'll just be a cult thing. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it'll um, come back in 20 years and everyone will be like, oh, man, remember that? <laughs> <laughs> it'll, be on, it'll be on a TV show, for sure. For sure. What One thing that we'll probably see, maybe not on a TV show, but certainly on every ad in between the breaks, is the new Apple over-ear head uh, car phones. So for those, who, for those of you who are very much... Uh, like keeping things on brand when you have your, you know, Apple phone, you want the Apple headphones, yet you've always wanted over-ear wireless headphones like all the cool kids like us who walk around. Um, you now can have that. You can buy for $899 a pair of over-ear wireless headphones that will match your Apple phone. Um, I'm not going to endorse whether it's good, bad or indifferent. I'm just saying it's out there. If you want to spend that kind of money, good for you. Um I, I don't know if it, if it's going to be using the same technology as Beats, which you know, as we know, Apple bought Beats and kind of started pushing their stuff. I was never a huge fan of those ones, but um, I don't know, Warren. What do you reckon? Uh, I don't know. They're, they're a little bit sexy. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I I use over ear headphones. I'm using them right now, but mm. they're pretty much the only time that I use them. I prefer to kind of be a little bit more kid free generally, um, and haven't got into. Um, uh, AirPods. AirPods. AirPods is actually bigger than three or four of the, the next largest business tech businesses um, combined um, behind them as well. Really? They're, it's ridiculous. It's their biggest. It's. I, I think people are going to howl at this one, but I think it's. Um, it's. It's one of their biggest um, businesses. Yeah. Um, which you wouldn't think. You'd think it's. You know, it's maybe in the top ten, but it's just huge. That that's um, that that is ridiculous. And like, I mean, as someone who does lose things particularly when they're small i wouldn't trust myself to be able to keep two very small pieces of kit in the place where they need to be which is you know either their box or my ears you could get a nice little chain kind of like those glasses with chains that go around the neck (laughs) yeah there are headphones that do that i've got them for running it's fine you don't need (laughs) them to be wireless and showing off that you've got white 300 hundred dollar headphones shoved in your ears covered in wax all right i'm gonna stop (laughs) <laughs> well, one thing one thing you might actually need though is the the smellicopter uh, we were having a bit of a, a giggle and uh, a kind of you know santa type kind of chuckle at this one but um yeah there's an interesting uh piece of drone technology that's come out um and it uses um, actual moth antenna to sniff out target chemicals so it's a, a little surveillance copter um you'd imagine like in manufacturing or mm. um you know, fire scenarios or airports or places where security of a lot of people is really important. Having a bunch of these buzzing around uh, is maybe not a bad idea. Possibly. Um, it's also a touch creepy, but that's all right. Touch creepy, yeah. yeah. Um, so so how, how does – so it's using, what, a common Hawk Moths antenna mounted on board and they've somehow created an interface between the organic moth antenna and the computer within the drone. Is that what you're telling me? Uh, uh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. So, so we're one step created, closer to cyborgs. We are one step closer to cyborgs. Um, so, yeah, in tests, um, it performed better than a, a traditional sensor of comparable size and power. So, you know, um, mechanical means of sniffing out uh, chemicals. Wow. Um, yeah, so the, the antenna are kind of excited by the particles wafting over them, creates uh, a, an accurate signal for those chemicals that are built to detect. So, um Wow. Yeah. Who knew? Billions of years of evolution can, uh, you know, create something that will work just as well, if not better, than a computer. 
It's um, yeah, it's I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of stuff like this. I I think you know drones are one of those things that they're, they're just kind of everywhere and yeah. they've kind of lost their novelty a bit. But there's great applications like this coming along now Absolutely. again. Absolutely, no, I'm, I'm 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 very intrigued by this. Very intrigued. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts, and via the app. Our uh, roving reporter, Laura Summers, has uh, been out and about doing some uh, interviews on our behalf. Uh, this is one that she has done recently, and uh, let's have a listen. I, uh, I think it's an interesting one. Um, Laura pinged me uh, a few days ago um, to uh, say, hey, um, this is really juicy, and um, we could probably have a chat about it. And um, I'm surprised that hasn't come up before, where uh, what we what we write in terms of simple code or more complex you know, algorithms and products and services, um, is it considered a uh, speech or um, um, expression or an idea? And is it subject to the same kind of um, protections or um, uh, interrogations that uh, other types of speech are? So, yeah, excited that she um, got a handle on this one. We have Rob Kovacev. He's a tax controversy partner at Norton Rose Fulbright, based out of Washington, D.C. and San Francisco. He brings a wealth of experience to our discussion with a focus on tax law and an interest in the intersection of law and technology. Tonight, we're going to be having a chat about this interesting case coming up in the law courts in Arizona, which is exploring this concept of code as speech and the protections that the First Amendment may offer programming. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thanks, Laura. Great to be here. So pleased to have your expertise to talk this through. It's such a fascinating topic. No, it really is. And there's a lot going on in the courts in the U.S. about this very issue right now. Yeah. It's interesting. This isn't actually the bigger news. Like, this is kind of a, a weird little article I found on Tector. And I was like, huh, code is speech? What a fascinating idea. Um, but it's, it doesn't seem to be getting mainstream news, but perhaps there's just too much other stuff going on. Well, that's for sure. There is a lot going on, but it is a big deal uh, because there are a lot of bigger implications beyond what's going on with a bunch of car dealers in Arizona when you're looking at the possible outcomes in this case. So to try and uh, give a little summary, like this this um, case is exploring this idea that software code is not only expressive, but could be worthy of First Amendment protections. Um, not all code falls under these protections, but demands made by the state appear to do so in this case. Um, can you, for our for our audience who maybe like are, are certainly not familiar with this case and probably less familiar with First Amendment protections, can you give us a little summary of what this case is about and specifically how First Amendment rights like come into it? Yeah, well, I think maybe it's best to back up just to talk about First Amendment law as it applies to uh, computer code to begin with. In the U.S., as you probably know, there's an explicit amendment in the Constitution that says. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And through precedent in the courts, that's really become a very strong presumption against the government compelling speech. If there's a government action, law, regulation that uh, compels someone to speak, uh, that uh, law must be narrowly tailored to obtain a compelling state interest. And uh, it's not just individuals, corporations have free speech rights too. And it's not just oral speech. Uh, there's been cases over the past 20 or so years that established that in some circumstances, computer code can be protected under the free speech clause. 
can you give us some examples um, outside of the computer code domain of how a, um, a government entity might be able to compel speech and what that looks like? Well, I guess first I'll give you an example of uh, a way that uh, just to show how expansive the First Amendment is. President Trump can't block people from seeing his Twitter feed. That violates the First Amendment. That's how broad it is when you're looking when you're looking at that. And there are a host of cases about uh, you know where you have uh, you know there are laws that are requiring, for instance, uh, people to say the Pledge of Allegiance uh, to the American flag, uh, or uh, that you know prohibit the act of flag burning as a protest. And consistently, those have been held to violate the you know, free speech clause in the Constitution. Yeah, right. The idea that you can't block someone on Twitter, is that because Twitter is essentially like a public domain, a public space of speech at this point? Or is it is it simply that the president is like required in theory to be able to say what he has to say to everyone and regardless of whether he likes their politics or not? Yeah, that's exactly right. It's because he is speaking as president. So he's, he's speaking as part of the government and the government cannot selectively choose who gets access to the forum, you know, to a forum. So even if you don't like President Trump, you can still follow his Twitter feed. Right, which makes sense. Um, so that's, that's uh, as you say, it's broad ranging and it covers a whole bunch of domains. Um, something that our um, audience may or may not know is that in Australia, we don't really have the same protections written into law. So when we talk about free speech protections in the U.S., um, those same things don't really apply over in Australian law. And in fact, we've seen some ways that government um, has been very uh, clear about saying, like, you can't say that or you can't do that. And we're just allowed to tell you that's the case. Um, so just a, a caveat that when we're having these discussions, this really is a U.S. centric um, legal legal space. Um, but perhaps more broadly, even though this, the, the legal protections only apply in the U.S., what happens in tech in the U.S. still applies to the rest of the world. So it does, it does still sort of filter out to the rest of us. Um, so let's, let's keep talking about this case. So this is talking about these, um, this, this law called the Dealer Data Security Law, which mandates changes to the dealer management system, um, including the institution of protective measures to limit breaches or leaks of sensitive data held by car dealers. Um, so we're talking about people making cars that capture data about the drivers. And this these laws are an attempt to, um, I, I guess, to try and summarize this, an attempt to give some protection to people and for, to give them some requirement to say if their data has been leaked or has been um, lost accidentally. Perhaps you can flesh this out for me, Rob. Sure. Well, I mean, the, the base, this case uh, is based on legislation that uh, addresses something called dealer management systems. So when you have a car dealer and they have uh, different uh, you know, data like inventory, sales, credit checks on potential purchasers of cars, all of that is managed by a third-party tech company that runs what's called the DMS, the dealer management system. So all that data goes into the DMS and it all turns through the algorithms there. And the DMS provider gives a license to the dealer to use that software to access the database, but it's an exclusive license that cannot be shared with a third person. And car dealers in Arizona and really in other states as well have uh, felt that that was unfair 
and have gone to their state legislatures and you know, tried to get uh, statutes like the Arizona Dealer Data Security Law to allow dealers to broaden access that they can give to third parties. And uh, the DMS providers, understandably, are, are resisting that. And that's what led to this case, because Arizona passed the law, and then the DMS providers sued to try and block it. Right. So why would they want to provide access to more third parties? Is this around like um, doing advertising, uh, using the data for those purposes, or, or like what what sort of um, applications of that that extension of permissions um, could we anticipate? Well, that's one of the areas of contention. If you ask the car dealers, they say that they want to have uh, provide access to people whose data is in there to make sure that it's being protected adequately. Uh, if you listen to the DMS providers, they say, no, we keep it under control precisely so we can keep it safe and we don't want you going and selling it to you know, people who harvest data or are going to use it to sell ads. That's kind of the policy argument between the DMS providers and the car dealers on who gets access to this uh, significant uh, data. Right. And they've um, they've referred to previous case laws citing other instances where code has been classified as speech, um, including a pretty well-known case that happened regarding the Apple San Bernardino case, um, where they were attempting to ask Apple to provide lawmakers access to this iPhone so they could do their terrorism investigation. Um, so can you speak a bit to uh, the previous case law, and particularly this Apple case, and how that applies here in this idea of code as speech? Sure. Well, the idea that uh, code can be protected as speech has been around for, I said, about 20 years or so. And uh, the idea is if the code is communicating just to the computer, it's not protected. If it's but if it's communicating with users, then it may be protected, depending on whether it's merely a functional capability or if it's something interactive, substantive, some interaction with the mind or will of the, you know, of the user, of the recipient. And that's the distinction which has been built into law to, uh, to kind of separate uh, code that's just functional or mechanical versus something that's expressive, which would be protected by the First Amendment. Uh, the Apple iPhone case is fascinating because it really did have this collision between law enforcement, uh, vital national security interests in one hand, and the uh, bedrock uh, freedom of speech First Amendment uh, protections on the other. And you know, this was back in uh, December of 2015, there was a terrorist attack in San Bernardino, California, and one of the terrorists had a, an iPhone, and the iPhone you know, was locked. And at the time, this was uh, you know, under the technology that Apple had at the time, the FBI was unable to unlock the phone. They sent it to NSA, and they weren't able to unlock the phone either. So the FBI was stuck you know, looking at this terrorist iPhone, wondering if there was something in there, information about a future plot or you know, other members of the cell that they could use. So they went to a judge and uh, sought a writ from the judge ordering Apple to write code to create a backdoor so they can unlock that iPhone. Apple challenged that writ in federal court on many grounds, including a First Amendment ground. They said, no, you are actually compelling us to write some code we don't want to write. And it wasn't just Apple. Just about everyone in the tech space joined in. Google, Amazon, Facebook, Microsoft. All these players came in because this was a vital interest to the tech community, whether 
the government could force them to do things like provide back doors, you know, you know, to uh, bypass security or encryption systems. Right. And this is very salient to the Australian audience because we've fairly recently had laws passed that that demand exactly that, that basically say that if law enforcement has justification, they can go to um, they can go to a telco or they can go to a tech company and say, hey, we want you to like backdoor this person's phone through and through updating your app or we want to be able to access this over here or, you know, force them to expose logs. So this is a very. Um, this is a very timely and relevant uh, sort of reminder that these things are quite real for us, as well as um, being sort of fought out across more abstracted concepts. Um, but yeah, the the idea that Apple didn't want to open the iPhone on um, free speech grounds is really interesting to me because most people in the tech community really focused in on the encryption and security implications of that request. And um, I'm sure you're familiar with this idea that, like, you know, encryption is either strong or it's not. And if you add in a backdoor, it doesn't just let the good guys in. It lets, you know, lots of it, it introduces a vulnerability that could get um, get bad very quickly, essentially. Um, but to to like circle back to that case, like as I understand it, that actually was never resolved. Like there was there wasn't a legal outcome that said, you know, free speech is is definitely the protection or it's not. Um, can you talk more to that? Sure. Uh, well, this big court case was set up and the judge was getting ready to rule and the FBI wasn't sure how it was going to come out. So they hired what, you know, what you know, has been reported to be professional hackers to actually break into the iPhone using, using their own techniques. And apparently they did. So at that point, uh, the case went away. So that still hasn't been decided, you know, to this day, but there's no reason why it couldn't come up again any time. So interestingly, um, when we see like these big constitutional questions, like they're often answered in like small cases, ones that don't necessarily get a lot of national attention or the plaintiffs um, or defendants aren't particularly compelling. Um, so I'm curious, what is your take? Do you think we're going to see a sort of stronger um, outcome going through this case in Arizona because it's not quite so compelling or quite so like significant on the national stage? Well, that's one of the reasons why this Arizona case is so fascinating. If you have a bunch of car dealers on one side and then you have a uh, third party data management system on the other, neither of them are particularly going to catch the, uh, the imagination of the American people. Uh, as to as to this issue, but uh, if the court ultimately holds that there's a free speech right that a private company has that can preclude the government from requiring the provision of access to uh, third parties, that could have massive you know, implications for all sorts of things. For instance, uh, a lot of the a lot of the movement right now is about uh, accountability, algorithmic accountability. And whether there's ways to have transparency, have ways for people to check to make sure that their data is correct, or that uh, the algorithms aren't just a black box, that there's some that uh, you know we can validate you know, what it is that the algorithm is actually doing. Is it actually following the law or whatever the uh, contractual requirements are supposed to be? A lot of those are predicated precisely on laws that give third parties access to you know, a tech company's proprietary information. And just writ large, this could be a really, really 
small test case, but a really important one for this huge issue that's going to come up increasingly over time over the next few years as the idea of algorithmic accountability uh, and dealing with these black boxes that tech companies have in proprietary um, in AI, it's going to become a very big deal. Yeah, absolutely. And we cover these topics um, extensively on the show. Like we're very interested in the question of, um, you know, data sovereignty, for instance. And, you know, like it's it's not just about the black box and the algorithm, but it's about sort of the, the chain of ownership of the data and often the sort of obscure and difficult ways to even follow who got a hold of the data and how um, to then understand what was done with it and uh, try and make some assessment of whether that was fair or not. No, oh, absolutely. And, if, and I originally come from a tax background and the taxation of the digital economy is a whole different topic. Uh, that, but again, a very fascinating and timely one. Yeah, I can imagine. For everyone listening, we've been chatting to Rob Kovacev, who's a tax controversy partner at Norton Rose Fulbright. We've been chatting about this case going through the Arizona courts, which is exploring the concept of code as speech and the expressive nature of code and whether it can be protected under the First Amendment. Thank you so much for coming onto the show, Rob. It's been just an absolute pleasure chatting. Thanks for having me. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. We are very, um, uh, very intrigued and uh, grateful to be uh, having a chat with Karen Bentley, who is the CEO of Wesnet. Um, there's been uh, a new report on uh, domestic violence and technology in Australia um, that's been produced uh, in partnership with Curtin University. Um, WESNET is a peak body for, for specialist women's domestic and family violence services. Um, so have a deep interest in this. And uh, obviously, technology, uh, we're fascinated to hear more about what is actually going on here. So, Karen, thanks for making time in your day today to, to have a chat with us. Oh, it's lovely to join you. Good evening. Good evening. Um, this is the, I think, the second the second report or study that you've done here. Um, I'd be really interested to know uh, how this came about and, and what, um, what happened to, to, to bring it to life. Well, so WESNET, as the peak body for domestic and family violence services, we've um, we've had a bit of an interest in technology because about 10, 11 years ago, um, we started getting reports from our members and we've probably got about, there's probably about 300 domestic and family violence services, specialist services across the country. And our members started telling us that, you know, abusers and perpetrators were turning up outside women's refuges and they couldn't work out how. Um, and so, you know, uh, we started to sort of get a bit, we got lots and lots of these. And, um, then we sort of started to talk to some of our sister organizations and one of them's in the United States. And, um, they sort of started to explain about, oh, you know, there are these little GPS tracking devices and there are all sorts of other ways that, you know, we can now track people's locations. So at that point we started to get very interested in the intersection between technology and violence against women. Um, and we really started to get into it and, um, I, you know, we went over to the United States. We actually t- learnt from, from our sister network there and we brought that training back to Australia. So we've been training frontline workers in domestic and family violence services um, for over, over the last few years. We've just, we've just finished training about 10,000 of them. Um, and so we look at all the different ways that abusers are misusing technology and, um, and what the experience of the victims and survivors is. 
And in 2015, we did the first survey with Domestic Violence Resource Centre Victoria. So we tried to just find out from those frontline workers, what were they seeing? And, and what are the ways that perpetrators are misusing technology? And what do we need to sort of go away and find out about? So we've just repeated that in 2020 to sort of get an update because, as you know, technology kind of moves really fast. So um, it was really timely to try and get, you know, the latest on what 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 are the frontline workers in domestic and family violence services around Australia seeing now in 2020. And and Karen, what what are they seeing? Has there been, as you say, there sounds like there's been a shift since the first um, report was done. What what what's what's new, and how how are perpetrators utilising the technological advances that we've seen? Well, uh, everything went up basically. <laughs> there wasn't a single technology that we saw being misused in 2015 that had sort of reduced. Oh, you know, I think landlines stayed the same. Um, which is probably not that surprising because, you know, landlines are starting to be a bit of an obsolete technology and social media sort of stayed the same, but everything else has gone up. We also added um, a bunch of new technologies that, you know, we've been seeing in our work emerge over the last five years. So we added things in like Bluetooth and Wi-Fi routers and um, a lot of the apps that didn't exist in 2015. And, you know, I think also that um, quite a lot of the technologies around Things like, you know, video and GPS have all been built into smartphones now. So they were the types of things that we saw have quite big increases. I'm interested to know, uh, just having a look at some of the stats in the the report, which we'll tweet out and and get out there, um, even services like MyGov were being used uh, as part of this. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, look... Um, that's one of the things that we were a little bit alarmed about and we had been hearing it sort of anecdotally. So, we, you know, I work with frontline services who ring us up and say, you know, I've got this client and I'm trying to help her but I can't work out what's going on. And so one of the things that we do hear about is that um, for some survivors, you know, that are, that are in a really controlling relationship, the usually the male of the, the partnership, he sets up the MyGov account for the family and he sets up all of the account details. He sets up, you know, the questions and everything like that. And then when they split, he's still got control of it. And so she can't gain access to her MyGov account. So that might might affect her in terms of accessing it for tax, um, for Centrelink, for, you know, Medicare. And, you know, we, we hear all the time about um, women who have just been locked out of their accounts. And I guess... That's probably one of the things that, you know, is really a battle for us when we're working with survivors is that if you think about an intimate partner relationship, like you share your passwords generally. Like, I mean, you you know a lot about each other and you can use those kind of ID questions. You, you know, you're going to know your, your mother's maiden name of your, of your spouse um, and they're the types of questions that they're using to check people's identity. And so there's an inherent flaw there when you've got a relationship that, gets really ugly and where one one partner wants to really sort of mess with the other one. And so that's what we see um, with all of those kind of accounts. It happens with MyGov accounts. It can also happen with things like telco accounts, bank accounts, Facebook accounts, email accounts, yeah. Karen, are we are we seeing any um, acknowledgement from service providers that this is a problem and, and kind of working towards fixing it or doing something about it? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, today, the telecommunications industry ombudsman has um, released a systemic report about what telcos need to do 
in relation to dealing with, you know, customers that are experiencing domestic violence. Um, and so we are seeing, you know, companies, technology companies and telecommunications companies start to really step up and understand that, you know, if you've got a platform, then you're going to have, given how prevalent domestic violence is in Australia with, you know, um, one in three women experiencing it from the age of 15, that if you're running some kind of company or platform which deals with lots of customers, some of your customers are going to be experiencing domestic violence. And so that's what we're starting to see. Banks are starting to do it. Telcos are starting to do it. They're starting to step up and actually recognise what might be issues with their platforms in relation to domestic violence. Karen, I'm interested to know um, what was your kind of personal journey with this, um, having that kind of um, discovery that people were turning up um, and in the worst possible way outside uh, shelters or services or what have you. Could, could you talk us through how you, you kind of figured out, oh, we need to go to the States, we need to get some training here? What, what was that like for you? Um, well, I guess I've always had a really big interest in technology. I've always been, you know, one of those people that's been really interested. I'm an early tech adopter and I've, you know, always been really interested in technology. And I also was very passionate and, and working quite a lot around, you know, the policy areas and like domestic and family violence. So, you know, I used to work in government in, in Canberra in the Office for Women around domestic violence. So um, when we sort of saw that together and, um, you know, Wesnet was looking for somebody who was interested in both technology and domestic and family violence, just like, you know, it was a, it really um, was a match for me in terms of, you know, not only being able to help, but also being able to bring that sort of IT side. So, you know, I work in, in the team that, that looks after this and we sort of describe ourselves as the IT nerds of the domestic violence sector. We've got a really passionate interest in, you know, preventing and eliminating domestic violence, but we're also really, really keen on, you know, helping women stay on technology and also, you know, using technology for good as well. Yeah, I'd be interested to know, we had a, um, some guests on the show from uh, Federal Police and um, they're running a hack on um, finding missing persons as an mm. exercise to kind of, um, you know, bone up Federal Police on, on how to go about that. What does the ideal response look look like to you in terms of domestic violence and I guess resourcing this I think I think I did read in the study that the police response hasn't significantly changed in the study no. from 2015 to 2020 so where does where does um I guess um doing better in this space um sit and, and what does that look like for you yeah look that was right and so one of the things that didn't change enough in my view was the frontline workers experiences when they had their um clients or survivors going to get help from the police um and I think it, it sort of very much was that it depends on who you get in terms of the police response. So if you get somebody who understands a bit more about the dynamics of domestic violence and how it can actually be a lot more than just physical violence, it can be about control and gaslighting and, you know, keep monitoring and surveilling and tracking and, and trying to control somebody. Um, and so there was a bit of a view that, because police may not necessarily have good understandings about, you know, domestic violence, that also doesn't help them when women are experiencing it through tech. So quite a lot of people that I work with, you know, if, if I, I guess the, the, the typical example is, you know, if you're being abused through Facebook, get off Facebook. But that's the same as, you know, um, saying it, it puts all the onus on the victim, I guess, yeah. to, be mm -hmm. at, to, to do everything to prevent an abuser abusing you. And so that's the same as, you know, 
um, don't walk out on the street after dark if you don't want somebody to rape you. You know, it's exactly the same sort of reaction. Um, so I think there has been some movement with police and we've certainly had some really excellent police responses in some in some cases where they really understand that, you know, when you're working on technology, there's a digital trail. And so that's fabulous for evidence collection. And like we work with a really fabulous detective in the United States and he uses the digital trail to basically throw the book at perpetrators. So he might get them on. He uses all sorts of lateral things in order to throw the book at domestic violence perps and it's brilliant. And so I'd really love to be able to see more of that happening in Australia where you can say, look, he's got a, there's a, the, an, an intervention order that says he can't contact, but, you know, he contacts within two hours of being released from, on bail or something like that. And so let's take a screenshot of that. Let's go around. Let's breach him. Let's get him back, you know, away from her. So I think we've got a whole sort of spectrum of police responses, but I think there's so much more that we could be doing to use technology to help police prosecute and to charge, you know, to, to like, provide all of that digital trail. Okay. Karen, one, one thing that I, and this is actually completely separate to our discussion, I noticed uh, earlier today um, on a government website that um, they've started, and I don't know how long it's been around, but a, a quick exit button for people who, yeah. who are searching yeah. for uh, service services that they might need in order to get themselves out of a, a family or domestic violence situation. Um, it's a sort of a button that's at the top of the screen you can click on quickly if someone's coming in and it doesn't yeah. want to see you Googling or looking up, you know, crisis centres or anything like that. That seems like a really simple, quick win that can we can implement to help yeah. people. Uh, can you think of any other ideas where someone, well, that like you know, small interventions that service providers or others might be able to do, or people themselves to to kind of, you know, be able be able to help people in these situations? Well, funny you should mention that one because actually our sister organisation, the National Networks to End Domestic Violence, probably invented that quick exit button um, about twelve years ago, um, and it was designed in an era when you know people had a desktop computer in the corner of the room and they were likely to have somebody come in and look over their shoulder, and mm. so you know you have this quick exit button to get get rid of it. Um, and maybe today it's not so useful because not many of us are, you know, stuck in a room with a computer. Like we're all running around with our mobile devices. So um, it is a good concept though. And I think just having safety warnings for people to say, you know, look, is it safe for you to actually be visiting this page? Because, you know, uh, if you feel like your device is being monitored and there are all sorts of apps now that enable, you know, a perpetrator to monitor what you're doing on your phone or on your computer – you might just be better off using a safer device. So um, having a warning um, just to say, you know, is it safe for you to be visiting our site? Like what, you know, having a think about from a customer's perspective or a client who's visiting's perspective, what would happen if her abuser found out that she was visiting that site mm. um, and just being really aware of that. So and, and then having good referral pathways through to, you know, get some help. Absolutely. Service provision definitely needs to be front and centre there. I'd be interested to know um, for, for people, maybe even before they go through this kind of situation, like, um, you know, relationships founder and, and breakdown and, and so forth, what, what are some good practices for people to avoid um, uh, some of the most common types of tracking or pursuit or, or stalking or, or what have you? Do you have like a general kind of digital health kind of approach that you'd recommend? Or Look, I think anybody who just 
practices really good, cybersecurity is going to be, you know, ahead of the game. One of the things that we would really encourage younger people, and this was a bit of a trend in the survey results, is that there's sort of an increasing, uh, I suppose, expectation that, you know, young couples are going to share everything about their digital lives with each other, so passwords and accounts and everything like that. And I think it's a good idea to try and, you know, keep a bit of separateness around that potentially. So, you know, you have a right to have your own digital accounts and passwords and emails. And so trying to keep those separate um, is, you know, for your, you know, that's respectful. Um, keep your own privacy. Don't don't get those all muddled up and tangled up. Um, and then let your partners have their own privacy in, on accounts. That's one good way of avoiding tangles later if things go wrong. Ab- ab- absolutely. Um <laughs> So sorry about this. Um, look, it's it's a, a, such an important thing, Karen, to be to be um, I suppose mindful of, and and, and it's it's a space that is constantly evolving. How can we find out more about what you guys are doing? Um, well, we have a special website which is designed specifically for survivors of domestic violence and a tech abuse, and it's called the Tech Safety TechSafety.org.au. Um, and we've got a, a toolkit there for survivors. So if you're experiencing domestic violence or other forms of gender-based violence and technology abuse, that's the place to go to get some tips and tricks. We cover all the different ways that, um, you know, you might need to protect yourself and sort of disrupt all of that. So that's that's one thing that you can do. And then Wesnet is um, around. We're on Facebook and Instagram and um uh, you can find out more about what we do and, and the work that we get up to in this space. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time, Karen. We've been speaking to Karen Bentley, the CEO of Wesnet, on the new report into domestic and family violence and technology that um, have, they've produced with Curtin University. Karen, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Uh, See you. Thank you. And um, if this interview has raised any concerns for you, there are uh, other uh, areas that you can speak to. 1800 Respect is on 1800 737 at 732. The Men's Referral Service is on 1300 at 766 491. Men's Line Australia is 1300 789 978. Lifeline is on 13 11 14 um, and of course if you are in immediate danger call triple zero for police and ambulance help you've been listening to bite into it on three triple r with warren and my name is dan uh, thank you so much to our guests for this evening hi this is vanessa Taholka. thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's bite into it a weekly radio show exploring tech news broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every wednesday Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts.